Uh, if you've been going through our series in the Gospel of Mark, you know where we're at today. We're actually in the final days of Jesus's life. This text brings us into Wednesday. He's crucified just 48, 40 hours later from the uh, Gospel account. And we were studying um, within the last week of Jesus's life for a couple weeks, we were studying eschatology or the end of all things. And Jesus not only remarked about when the temple would be destroyed, but also a little bit about what would happen before his glorious return. So we looked at that. Amen. And you guys are all still here. So I thought that was good. Uh, eschatology can split the church, and apparently it, it didn't. So uh, uh, amen. But now we're going to, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a lot, obviously, that happens. There's the betrayal. Jesus is accused. He's condemned. He suffers. He dies. He's buried and he rises again. But before that, I know, I know. Before, uh, it's because it's sad, you know. <laughs> She's just got good discernment. Um, but before that happens, there's this precious story here in Mark 14 and verse 1 that, uh, that we read about. And you've probably heard it before. It's where Jesus is, is anointed with this very expensive perfume. So we're going to read about this today. I'm going to start in verse 1. And it says this, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot in this passage that we can uh, talk about. And I was kind of thinking, obviously, about the issue of value. And uh, the question came to my mind, and it's probably an obvious answer, is that what is the most valuable thing in your life? I mean, you can go ahead and say it, just one, one word, not sentence. What is the most valuable thing in your life? Sal so God, salvation, family. We're not sure. You guys are processing. If you're married and they're next to you, say my marriage. <laughs> Men, this is a great time of redemption. My wife. <laughs> Women are like, of course, my husband. Of course. That's uh, all the kids in the room are like, my parents. You know, that didn't come out just yet. Nope, you're waking up. That's fine. But it, obviously, we're going to say things like God. We're going to say family, marriage, kids, parents, um, if you're thinking material possessions, like one of the greatest possessions we have is probably our house, but of course we don't want to say that first. But we can say all this, right? Like if I ask you or you ask me, 
I'm gonna share words, the words that are gonna come out. This is what I value the most. And those are just words. But the reality is value is not just determined by what we say, but by what we show. It's by the actions. You, you, you can determine what is most valuable in a person's life by what they do and not just by what, what they say. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 21. He said, where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, where you put your investment, your time, your talent, and your treasure, not just your money, but your time, that's more important than your money. Where you put your time, your talent, your treasure, that shows. We can say whatever we want to say, but the fact is it's seen by where our investment uh, is. Now, many of you know, I've, I've told a lot of stories about being in the real estate industry. I was uh, in real estate for 15 years, both as an agent and flipping houses. Um, and I figured, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be a pastor. No, I'm just, <laughs> it's not funny to you. It's funny to me. All right. Um, but I learned a lot by being, uh, by being in business. And one thing I learned is that as I got really acquainted with people, it's kind of uncomfortable because I'm, I get immersed into your financial portfolio, like your debt to income ratio. Lenders do as well, but I know your debt. I, I know what you can afford. I usually know how much money you make. Starting to get uncomfortable yet. Um, I get immersed into someone's financial portfolio and it's really, it was a blessing for me to help people find a home. I thought this is a wonderful thing. This is the place where a person's going to spend the rest or a lot of their life and raise their family or or maybe it's that, other, that la later year, and this is where I'm going to settle down. And, 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 uh, and so I thought it was a blessing, but I, <laughs> I learned what people value in these experiences that I had in real estate. For example, I'll just give you one. Um, one time I was going to sell a person's home and put it on the market, and I walked into one of their rooms, one of their bedrooms. As I walked in, it had all kinds of lights, like these lights behind me. It had all kinds of like lights, and it was really strange. And there were weapons all over like the walls. This person had like walls of weapons, like ancient civilization weapons. I walked in, and I just felt uncomfortable. And a couple of you are like this, so just let me say my piece. As I walked in the room, I thought two things. Number one, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't know how I feel right now with these people. And number two, this is really expensive. This person has a room just for their weapons. Now I'm talking to the guy as we're looking and I'm thinking, how am I going to list this property and take a picture of this room? This is the war room. You've always wanted one. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know. One wall was just ancient samurai swords. So I asked the guy, I go, you know, I don't know anything about it this, how much is this all worth? He said, it's about a $100,000 collection. I thought that's like one third of your house. Just sell that and you can buy more expensive. Anyways. All right. So now he never told me this guy never said, did I judge him? Yes. But in my heart, cause I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Christian. So I didn't say anything, <laughs> but it was in my heart, you know, um, he, ne he never said, hey, I value weapons of high quality, but I knew he did because he had a room and I had to help them find another house that had another room, a bigger room for more weapons of quality. I learned what he valued by where his investment was. Now I was thinking also about this picture. I may have shown this to you before. I've shown other pictures like it, but I want you to take a look at this. This is called Salvatore Mundi. I might've said that wrong, but this is painted by Leonardo da Vinci in 1500, early 1500s. 
It's an oil on canvas painting of Jesus making a cross. That's probably hard for you to make out. 26 inches tall, 19 inches wide. That's the original. Here's my question. Do you guys, do you guys like this? Yeah, I don't think Jesus looked like that. I'm just going to start there. Uh, he did not look like that. But this was uh, at auction. This sold for the highest amount of money that any painting's ever sold, $450 million in 2017. $450 million. And uh, is it worth $450 million? Not a discussion here, just a question. (laughs) I'm not auctioning it off, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I kickstarted a conversation. I get it. Um, Yeah. A couple of you just woke up like, what what is that? (laughs) What church did I come to? (laughs) No, we're not not Catholic. I'm not taking a dive there. I'm just, but, but we might ask the question. Is it worth it? And you, a lot of us would say, would say no. But the, the truth is, this is absolutely worth $450 million. Why? Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think. It matters to the person that actually put up the $450 million. The rest of us are just on the side criticizing somebody else's investment, but that person is the one that made the investment. So to them, it's worth this amount of money. And here's the principle. Value and worth is always determined by what someone is willing to give or pay. It's not determined by our criticism. It is determined by what a person is willing to pay. And apparently that means that this is what it's worth. And so when we think about value and worth, we're looking at a story where Mary, this woman, makes a very serious investment that all, in all that she has. She gives it to Jesus, and it's a very compelling story. But she's not the only person in the story. I want to look at all of the characters and their reactions and their response to Jesus as we study this passage. So the first place that we want to land is looking at the hatred of the religious leaders in verse 1 and 2. And I want to highlight a couple things about verse 1 and 2 concerning them. And the first is they were actively seeking a way to kill Jesus. Now, we know it's Passover, which is a season of remembrance for the Jewish people to celebrate God's deliverance in in their life as a people. And so we know that all the people are looking for and preparing lambs for the celebration. In the midst of that, we find a sinister plot of these religious leaders who want to kill Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, I just, it's, it's an amazing thing on God's timetable that while everyone is looking for and preparing a lamb, Jesus himself is also being prepared. And they're seeking to do something that is unimaginable, but this is a principle that isn't just a Christian quip. It's not just a cheap thing. God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he uses it for good. Now, if you think that's cheap, it's not. Story after story after story in the Bible shows this truth to be the case, and I think we see it right here. They may think, um, they may think that they're just going to do away with Jesus, but actually, um, it's all a part of God's plan. The second point I want to make about them is their desire to kill Jesus was satanic. From previous passages, we know that they're jealous, they're threatened, they're offended, they're angry. All of this... All of their sin made them porous to the work of Satan. It made them open. It made them available. They were 
uh, available to being demonically inspired to kill the Son of God. Their hatred for Jesus is hatred for God. These are professional ministers who are supposed to be people that teach the word of God, lead the way of God. And here they want to kill the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God the Son. They want to kill God. I just don't know how that settles on you, but to me, you got to say it the way that it really is. They did not value his life at all. They wanted him to die. This is satanic. It's born in the heart of Satan, and they're allowing themselves to be open and available for a greater plan. And we need to see that there's something going on behind just their being offended and angry and threatened and jealous. This stuff opens us up to something even greater that we might not realize. Number three is the satanic strategy still exists today. Satan and demonic spirits still plot and scheme to rid the planet of the biblical Jesus by any means. Now that happens in modern philosophy. We could talk about atheism for a second if we wanted to. This is the idea that there is no God. God does not exist. And there are a lot of um, ideas about how we came to be and the earth came to be, but this is, this is what it is. God doesn't exist. And so some of the proof of that in the atheist mind is that if God was real and if God did actually exist, then why does, why does the bad happen that does today? Or why does evil still exist? Or why do these things continue to happen? And why did I lose my loved one? And, and the suggestion is that if God was real and if God did exist, then these bad things wouldn't happen. Well, there's a lot underpinning all, all of that, meaning God would have to control every single decision and every detail. So it's not available to like any theological um, viewpoint. But in modern philosophy, that's what, that's what it is. It's like, let's do away with God. Let's kill God in, in modern philosophies that nobody believes in him because he doesn't exist. That's, that's atheism. But the second way that this satanic strategy still exists that we see in the religious leaders is false theology. I hear it today, you hear it today, it sounds like this. I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. I can't believe in a God that doesn't affirm what I think is true. I can't believe in a God that doesn't agree with me. Friends, this statement is the problem. If God is God, then whatever he says is true. It's not if God agrees with me, it's that if we agree with God, <laughs> If God is real, if God is true, if the Bible is real, if this is who God is, then our job is to find out who he is and what he wants and to follow that path. If he's not, then we do our own thing. But this is what people will say today. And I understand that it, that it comes to our mind. I understand that we're grappling with issues. But the reality is, it's, it's not, that's not a picture of God. So there's false theology uh, today. And that it's, trying, it's a satanic ploy, strategy, trying to do away with who God is. The religious leaders were these ministers in their day that Satan had got a hold of their heart. And we have to see how they're colluding with the enemy to bring about the demise of Jesus. But this brings me to talking about the betrayal of Judas. After verse 2, now I'm jumping to verse 10 here because after verse 2, Mark takes us back a week. We call this a Mark and sandwich. This happens five times in the book of Mark. So here's what happens. Mark tells a story about the religious leaders, and then he talks to us about Mary pouring perfume on his body, but that's six days before what we're talking about in the book of Mark. So as we travel through the gospel, here we are on Wednesday, and then all of a sudden, Mark takes us back six days before, 
and tells us this story, and then he brings us back to the betrayal of Judas. It's kind of interesting. Why does he do that? And here's why. Most scholars believe this, that Mark is showing us the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas going out and betraying the Lord. And I want to show you from Luke's gospel account that Satan had entered Judas's heart. Look what it says here in Luke 22 and verse 3. This is a parallel account. It says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus, um, to betray him to them apart from the crowd. The religious leaders... And Judas were inspired of Satan, and they begin to collude together. This is how it works. This is what really does happen. So two things. Number one, Judas betrayed Jesus because he was vulnerable to the enemy. Now, we know Judas didn't make one decision. Judas made many decisions, and the climax of that was his betrayal. This is how it works with all of us. Repetitive sin opens us up. Unrepentant sin opens us up to the work of the enemy in in our soul and and in our life. Now, some people will say, well, it was the enemy that did it through Judas. Actually, Judas is still responsible for his own sin. Judas is responsible for his greed. Judas is responsible for his agreement with evil. Judas is still accountable for what he did wrong. But we have to acknowledge that our love for sin as well will open up doors to agree with or partner with satanic plans. Now, this is really important because we can't just keep living in a certain way, unrepentant, thinking that it's not gonna have consequences. There is a greater plan. God has a greater plan for us as we follow him, but the enemy has a plan as well if we persist in that path that is away from God. He wants to destroy everyone and he'll do whatever he can to make that happen. So Judas betrayed Jesus because he was open or vulnerable to the enemy. But secondarily, Judas betrayed Jesus because he valued money more than Jesus. How do we know that? Because he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I didn't know exactly how much that was in ancient times. I was like, how much is that? What what was he willing to give up Jesus for? Roughly about $18,000 today. He was willing to sell out the Son of God for about 18 grand. And this is where Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You'd say, well, Ben, this just seems unfathomable. How could Judas sell out Jesus? He walked with him. He heard his sermons. I mean, can you imagine listening to Jesus? You would not have to listen to me. It's amazing. Like listening to Jesus, the son of God. He heard his sermons. He saw his miracles. He watched his compassion, the love that emanated from him. Judas had a front row seat to all that Jesus had done and all that he was. It was incredible. And he was willing to sell him out for $18,000 after all that. It's like, how could this happen? Well, Judas Judas may have taken that path, but the other disciples didn't. And I was reading 1 Peter chapter 1, and I and I'd never made this connection before, but I, I want to make a connection if I can. Peter didn't have the same perspective. Look what he said to the churches scattered abroad in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, look at this, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter saw Jesus live a perfect life. When he says Jesus was a lamb without defect, he is affirming, I literally lived with Jesus for three years and I never saw him sin. He was perfect. He's affirming the sinless perfection of the son of God. And at the same time, I think he might be acknowledging that there was one in our company that was willing to consider his life as nothing, silver and gold. And Peter said, we were not purchased with something that cheap. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. To Peter, the death of Jesus was more valuable than anything else because he was worth everything to him. Now, this is a little bit of a scary thought when you think about it. It means that you can be very religious and you can know a lot about Jesus. You can be around Jesus. You can be around Jesus' people, but you can still be one decision away from falling away. That isn't me trying to get up here to scare you. (laughs) Man, if I had that ministry, you know. Fear sells, but this is a sober reality that it is possible to know a lot about Jesus. It is possible to have a lot of knowledge. It is possible in this particular instance to be around Jesus and you to at the same time be one step away from turning your back on him. I mean, what a sober thought. But I wanna turn to verse three and look at the love and the devotion of Mary. Look what it says here in verse three. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now it says there in the house of Simon, we don't know who Simon is. He was a leper, but there's no way he can still have that title because I think if you're around Jesus, you're no longer a leper. He was a leper. He, he is not um, a leper, but you know, I kind of feel like we should rip the label off. And let's just call him Simon. Let's call him Simon. In John 12, we're told that this woman is Mary, and she has a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, which is found in John chapter 11. So there are a lot of things to say about this incredible act of love from Mary, but two things. Number one, Mary loved Jesus by believing what he said. Now, here's the thing. It's customary when uh, in ancient times, when you come into someone's home, if they have oil, they might put a drop or two of oil on, on your head. There's a, there's a fragrance, right? Not everybody smells great in ancient times. They're walking from here to there. They don't get into their air-conditioned cars. Um, and it's a sense of refreshing. It's kind of like honor. But Mary does something incredible, something radical. She pours an entire vial. She breaks the vial, pours the entire bottle over Jesus's head. And the question could be why? It's customary, little bit of oil. She pours the entire thing over Jesus. Verse eight tells us why. Jesus actually says it. He said, she did this to prepare my body for burial. But how did Mary know that she was doing that? How did Mary know Jesus was gonna die? Well, in my personal assumption is that Jesus, we know, had been teaching the disciples, I must suffer, be rejected, and die and rise again. He said it at least three times in the book of Mark. He probably said it more. Those are the only times recorded. But I believe that Mary heard Jesus say this. Somehow we we know that. In Luke chapter 10, it says that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus doing what? Listening attentively to his word. She's listening attentively to, what did she hear? I think that she heard Jesus was going to suffer. He was gonna be rejected, die and rise again. 
And there's a difference in Mary. Mary heard something that the disciples heard, but she did something the disciples didn't do. And that's the incredible thing here is that it isn't just love and devotion and generosity. It's also faith. When Mary heard Jesus say this, she believed Jesus. The disciples the entire time were hoping that Jesus would put this narrative away because they had a really good gig going. They're thinking, Jesus, this is awesome. You're the best itinerant preacher ever. People are like throwing themselves at us. Crowds are gathering. We're the most important and popular people. Everyone's taking care of us. They're welcoming us in their homes. We have enough food. We have enough money. We're being taken care of. Why would you stop the show? So they're tolerating the truth of Jesus. Mary is responding to the truth of Jesus. It takes great faith for her to do something like this. And to me, that's the convicting part. It isn't just what she did, it's why she did it. It's because Jesus was speaking the truth of what was gonna happen to him. And she said, I want to prepare him for his burial. That's the incredible part that precedes what she even did. And the principle is this, when you value Jesus the most, you will give him your absolute best. And that starts not just by our generosity. It starts with what's in our heart. It starts with us believing God. And that leads me to my second point. Mary loved Jesus by giving him her best. The, the pure nard, uh, scholars disagree on what this actually is. I wish it were easy to just stand up and say, this is what it is. But was it oil, perfume, kind of all of the above? It, it comes from some plants in the Himalayan mountains, somewhere in India, We've lost track a little bit of what exactly this was. What we do know was it's very expensive. And that's what it says. Now, for Mary to have this, it probably was her inheritance or a dowry when she goes to get married that her husband would have helped to steward or be in possession of. It's the way that a father would give um, a woman, um, one of his daughters, inheritance, right? Usually it'd go to the firstborn uh, male. And so this was a way for a father to give to, the, to his daughters. And so what we find here is that she had this and it was worth 300 denarii. That's probably about 50 to $60,000 today. It's a year's wage. So she had some, it's a family heirloom. This isn't just like a little perfume. Like this isn't my cool water at home or whatever your thing is. Some of you have a little more bougie. You know, you got like Chanel or I, I don't know what the thing is. I started looking up perfumes and I'm like, I don't even want to go. There's like one perfume out there. It's like millions of dollars for like ounces. I thought, Wow. I don't think any of you have that, but if you do, you might want to sell that and give it to the youth kids camp. <laughs> you might want to just uh, pray about that, you know, uh, think about it. <laughs> might want to rethink your decisions, but um, all right, I won't give you a lecture today. Without a doubt, Mary is giving everything that she had. Reminds us of the woman that gave the two copper coins. Remember that? Just a couple chapters before she goes to the treasury, she gives two copper coins. Jesus stops the disciples and says, look at that. And they're like, look at what? She gave all that she had to live on. This is the same thing. Notice that it's two women, by the way. It's two women. Jesus is honoring in the last, what happened there? Something happened? That wasn't a guy, a man didn't stand up and go, yes. <laughs> Although you should have. Notice, I, I think there's a reason Jesus is bringing about essential equality. That's what he's doing. Women didn't have standing in, this, in that culture and in that time. And, and he's pointing out two women. And he's saying, look at their faith. Look at their generosity. Look at how they're giving their, their best. I think this is very convicting. It's very powerful. And the, the, Mary is not the only person here in the house, though. 
And I want to point out the reaction of the observers. It doesn't give us their name. We know Judas is one of them, but there's others there. Verse 4 and 5 talks about the response that Judas pioneers, but probably the disciples were all in agreement with. And so, number one, the observers were angry at Mary for being wasteful. It actually says in verse 4 and 5, they were indignant, and that means they were deeply grieved to the point of physical irritation. Now, I just want to play this out to you. When she did this to Jesus, they were like, I did that. I got another service. You got to tell me. Don't do that again. <laughs> this is the word I would use. They physically manifested. That was so, wait, what are you, crazy? That's what they did. They, they, this word, indignant, they were to physical irritation. You could see it in them. That's how they responded. And they didn't have a problem with doing something nice for Jesus, a little dab of oil, no problem. Put a little oil on Jesus. Jesus deserves a little refreshing, a little bit of oil. Give Jesus a little something. He's tired. He's been preaching. Give the miracle worker a little broiled fish, a little bit of bread. Not a problem. Do something nice for Jesus, but something radical? No, that's extreme. They didn't see that Jesus was worthy of such a sacrifice. Do you see it? He's not worthy of this sacrifice. That's what, they're, that's what they're saying. This is over the top. This is wasteful. This can be the narrative when people witness such a tremendous sacrifice laid down before Jesus. Now, I've seen this before. And God forbid that we don't become people like this, where we look at someone's radical sacrifice and it so provokes us because, and we become critics rather than celebrate and thank God for people giving themselves more, surrendering themselves more to Jesus instead of celebrate, celebrating that as a wonderful thing. We go, oh, you know, that's wasteful. That's over the top. That's too much. I don't know. I don't observe, I don't observe a lot of that. So when I see someone give themselves more to Jesus, I get excited. I get excited. I was an intern director for many years, and I can't tell you how many parental conversations I had when we started leading young people to fast. That's over the top. That's a little too much. My, my Johnny, my Sarah, you know, my Boaz, you know, they have, <laughs> they, they have to eat. You don't understand. I've been feeding them my whole life. I'm like, your Boaz can go without a meal or two. You understand? And seek Jesus a little bit more. But how many conversations I had, you're going to go on a mission trip. You're going to go where? You're going to give what? You're going to support that church. You're going to give to kingdom mission. You're going to give to mission. You're going to, what are you doing? That's wasteful. You could give that to the poor. Wow, that's a convenient argument. Oh, that leads me to my second point, of course. The observers rebuked Mary for not caring about the poor. <laughs> they speak for Jesus. Do you see that? Just think about it. Jesus is there. They're convinced he's the Messiah at this point. You just got to picture this properly. They're reclining back. They don't sit in tables like us. They recline back. They're reclining back. She breaks the, the jar or the, the vial. She pours it over Jesus. Jesus is there just dripping. The house is smelling. I mean, I can't imagine. It just whoosh. They're overwhelmed with this smell, this perfume. And they're physically manifesting and they just speak out. That's wasteful. That could have been given to the poor. Jesus is right there dripping with this oil, dripping with this perfume. They don't ask Jesus what he thinks about it. They begin to speak for Jesus. This is a waste. 
And this is what we should have done with the money. I don't know if you see it, but I started thinking we can do that sometimes too. We start thinking this is what's supposed to happen. We don't pray about it. We don't study the Bible about it. We don't think about what God wants or what Jesus wants. We just automatically criticize and respond to something that another person is doing in the name of God. Wow. Paul says in Romans not to judge another person's servant because you don't know the expectations. You don't know what they've been asked to do. How can you judge the response of a person before God when you don't know what God's asked them to do? We don't know the criteria. We don't know the expectations. And here we are talking about what we think. Very godlike, if you ask me. Very godlike. I know what should have happened. No, I'm not the one that gave him the criteria or the demands. I'm not the one that set the expectations, but this is how I feel about this. Now, having, being someone that's owned a lot of stock and a little bit of real estate in Critical Avenue, I think I am the foremost authority on criticism because I've had my struggle. My drug of choice is criticism, or let's just call it what it is, judgmental. I, I have had a lot of problems with this in my life, and I've had to ask the Lord to deliver me from that. And if you struggle with it, just go ahead and say amen. amen. There's more of you than that, I know. <laughs> but this moment is insightful to me. As we look at this criticism, it shows us that we can use one spiritual truth to justify our lack of another spiritual truth. Very convenient option, isn't it? Judas wasn't interested in giving to the poor. It was just a convenient way to justify his lack of love for Jesus. The disciples demeaned Jesus, not Mary. They did not believe he was worthy of this sacrifice. They couldn't see it. The critics of sacrifice are often those who are resisting greater devotion to Jesus themselves. And let's just call it what it is. When we enter into criticism of other people, we, are, we stop listening to Jesus asking more of us in our relationship and devotion to him. We put our energy and our focus and our effort on what other people are doing, which is inappropriate at best. It's not what God asks of us. The world and many Christians have no problem with lots of possessions and money and pursuit of wealth and the finer things in life. It's like we have no problem. You can have all of the things in this life, but don't give too much to Jesus. We have prob no problem with all this. No problem with how much stuff. I mean, have you seen the price of things lately? It's just we just keep acclimating. I, I know some of you are like, yeah, let's talk about it. Not today. <laughs> Not today. But the finer things in life, not a problem. Now, I'm not saying he's against all that. I'm not saying you can't have a nice car. I'm not saying you can't have a nice house or your clothes, whatever. But I mean, we're just, we're fine with all that. But then comes a criticism when we give more to the Lord, time, talent, treasure. Somebody emailed me the other day. Um, seven years ago, they started a business. I prayed for them actually to start this business. They believed the Lord, um, you know, asked them to do this. And it took a while, but the business began to flourish. And now it's just, it's just flourishing. They have a whole staff. They've got a place. Um, it just keeps growing, you know, month by month, year by year, it's just growing. And uh, they got married and the Lord spoke to her and her husband and said to her, basically, both of them confirmed this. And they're not people that are, are, are fickle or flimsy or, or whimsical, compulsive. They're not like that. 
And so she said, the Lord spoke to us and said, for 12 months, we're supposed to basically let our business go dormant so that we can spend time investing into the kingdom of God and serving him. And so we're right now, we're saving up money so that we can pay our staff for 12 months. Wow. And we can take care of all our bills for 12 months so that we can solely, completely focus on the Lord. Now, you could hear that, and, and, and she was asking for prayer because she's struggling. Like, am I going to lose all my clients? But, but she's like, I, we have a confirmation. This is what the Lord is asking us to do. Now, some people hear that, and they go, that's wasteful. That's the wrong thing to do in business. Come on. You start a business, it flourishes. You strike while the iron's hot. You don't let it go. No, friend. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense in the natural, and so we invest into his kingdom. And if we're not available to this kind of sacrifice, maybe we'll never see the reward that God wants to bring through our life for his glory. God is asking us to do these kinds of things at times. Now, you might say, well, Ben, that's a little too much. It it could be for where you're at. That's true. I want to encourage you, though. God does not always start us with the extravagant. He wants us to enter into the consistent. Here's a principle for you. We will never, ever get to a place of doing the radical if we simply will not do the regular. It's not going to happen. I mean, we're never going to be a theologian if we just can't read our Bible every day. Like we're not going to disciple our kids if we're not even on a path of discipleship ourselves. We're, 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 we're not going to have things happen that are radical in our life if we're not doing anything regular in our life. God calls us first to the consistent and then it sets us up to be able to consider the radical and the extravagant. So I want to encourage you today, let's not start with the extravagant. I know good Pentecostals read these stories and like, man, I need to be like Mary. I need to be like the woman with the issue of blood. We just bypass the years that she sought help, the years of her saving money and spending it all to, for medical practice. We just, we just wipe all that away and we're like, I got to enter into the, the one moment where she reached out to the hem of his garment. And we haven't spent enough moments doing the things that we could have done. And so our repentance is not to be those that are just reaching for the hem of his garment or those that are breaking the vial of the family heirloom. It's like we need to enter into the consistent. We need to enter into the regular because I'm telling you, if you don't do that, we don't build a foundation where the extravagant and the radical make sense. I've got a lot of stories about this. I know what I said is just, I know what I just said is very true. Sometimes people want to be generous, but they've never been a good steward of what they have. You can never become generous. You can't become a generous. It can't just be compulsion. That's why Paul says, don't give out of emotional compulsion, but give as the Lord has led you. And that doesn't mean compulsion. It's the opposite. Give consistently, give principally, give biblically. Learn how to do what God says and build your life on that. And then when the voice of God comes, bam, you're ready to do it because you've been giving yourself to the normal way of a Christian life. Just like Judas made many decisions before he betrayed Jesus, we, in order to give radically to Jesus, make many decisions before that happens. What does it say about Mary? She was sitting at his feet, listening attentively to his word. Her obedience to Jesus was not just a compulsive moment. It was that she was listening to Jesus in a consistent way, longing for and looking for what she could do. And this was the culmination of that. 
Amen. I, I have to close. Amen. I have to close because we've got baked goods that are calling your name. <laughs> now, I didn't mean to preach on being generous today, but it obviously came forth and there is an opportunity for you to directly obey. <laughs> now, isn't it like the Lord to bring that about? I just see it happen. It happens all the time, doesn't it now? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I always tell the Saturday night folks uh, that Sunday morning will go better, and it never does. <laughs> but they think it does. You know, a lot of them walk away and go, thank God, you know, we're just praying him into Sunday. That's what we're doing. <laughs> we're just praying Sunday's going to go smooth. Pastor Ben, you know, he's learning. He's growing, isn't he? Yeah, he's good. So if it goes good, they're like, we prayed for that. Amen. I want to draw a close as we look at the response of Jesus. Um, there are three things, but I, I just want to focus on number two. The first one is what Mary did. This is Jesus' perspective, I, I think, as I look at the text. Number one is what Mary did was timely. Jesus said in verse 8, she did this to prepare me in advance for my burial. That, that, that was something that, that, that they would do. They would prepare a body for, for burial. Jesus was murdered so quickly that his body wouldn't have been prepared. I mean, who could put all, string all this together? But this was very much a prophetic thing. And Mary's obedience was both powerful and radical, but prophetic. And sometimes we have opportunities before the Lord that we got to move on them. You know, we got to move on them. And, um, and so her obedience and her response was timely. Number two, what Mary did was beautiful. Look at verse six. It says, Jesus responding to the critics. They're scoffing, they're manifesting and Jesus says, leave her alone. It's like Jesus stood up for Mary because what she was doing was, this is what he says, what she did was beautiful. Now, it says good in the text, but there are a couple different Greek words for the word good. In the text, there's also another point where he says, you have the poor with you all the time and you can always do good to them. The word he uses there, good to them, good to the poor, it's just like a good deed. But the word that he uses here for Mary, good, it's the same word as beautiful. What she did to me was beautiful. I just think that's incredible. I, I thought this week about how when we serve God, it doesn't matter if we think it does, it's not a big deal. Jesus sees it as beautiful. Did you know there's a place where Jesus sees what we do as beautiful? You have to know that. If we constantly look at what we do before the Lord is not enough or not good enough or should be more or isn't great or, you know, isn't like Mary. I mean, we can't just putting our, if that's our thing, Jesus looks at every step that we take, everything that we give, every time that we surrender, every serving that we do, Everything that we do for him in the name of Jesus, he looks at it as beautiful. That's his perspective, especially in a world of contrast. I mean, when we share his love with others or we spend time in prayer, worship, studying scripture, when we give our time, or our money to the work of his kingdom, when we gather with the body of Christ to worship and to encourage each other, he sees this as beautiful. What if Jesus' perspective of what we're doing right now is beautiful? When we seek to do right and we're criticized for it. I've got stories. You probably got them. <laughs> got a lot of stories. But it's beautiful to Jesus. See, what we do, we have to do it for the Lord. We can't just do it for others. We have to do it for the Lord. It's a start with Jesus. We practice hospitality. 
We give what we have. We do what we can. Jesus takes note of all of it. He just does. I thought that's profound. The third thing is what Mary did will be an example to the world. He said, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in testimony of her. It's memorialized. Her action before Jesus was, it was criticized by them that were in the house at that time, but it was memorialized by Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about this woman who did such an incredible, wonderful thing. She did not do it so that we would talk about it right here today. She didn't do it for that. Did you notice that as we read scripture, the people that did these things before God, they didn't do them so that they would be written about that they would be posted on social media, that they would be cared about, seen as something great. They did not do them for that. They were overwhelmed by their love for Jesus. And that's what compelled them to do what they did. I'm sure you can see it, but uh, this passage gives us a clear contrast between Judas and Mary. And there really isn't middle ground. The middle ground is the criticizers. It's the crowd of the critique. It's the... uh, the judgmental, that's, that's the middle ground. But between those two is Judas's betrayal and Mary's devotion and love for, for the Lord. And here's what I was thinking about. Mary deemed the death of Christ worthy of everything, but Judas deemed his death worthless. His death was worthless to Judas. In the final week of Jesus' life, he wanted the disciples to see what devotion to him could look like. It looked like a widow giving two copper coins when she didn't have anything, and it looked like a woman giving Jesus her inheritance to prepare him for his burial. That's the picture that I believe Jesus wants to put into our hearts. He calls us to value him above all people, above all things, and above ourselves. That's the call of Jesus. He is more valuable than anything. And until he becomes more valuable than anything, we're not going to follow him in everything. This is the call. If you struggle with your Christian life, if you struggle, I just want, I want to obey Jesus. I, I want to follow him. I want to love him more. I want to give more to him. Friends, I just would, I would ask you today, is he the most valuable thing or, or is, are the waters muddy? Are other things becoming more valuable to us in this life so much so that we don't see Jesus the right way and we don't give to him the right way? We're not moved towards him or compelled towards him the right way. And so as we close, I just want to pray that God would move our hearts toward him even more. And that's, that's what we desire today. Would you stand? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. The call is to give all. He's worthy of it all. Amen. He's worthy of it all. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. As we study your word, we learn about people who gave their all. And uh, I want to be compelled like that. I want us to be compelled like that. Lord, it can seem so far away at times, like I, I don't know where to start. I pray that you would help us start in the simple and the consistent, that when we give something up or we take something on or we give more to you or we even just surrender to you, Every time that we do that, we're stepping closer and closer towards what it really means to be fully surrendered. And I'm praying, God, today that you would reveal to us what that's supposed to look like for each of us. It means something different for us. Perhaps we're in a place where we need to make that decision for the first time. And I pray, God, that you would move our hearts by the truth of your word to do what you are asking of us. 
And that in the middle of the world's confusion, we would step right through that and say, Jesus is Lord, and you're worthy of it all. Thank you, O oh God. With every head bowed just for a moment, I want to acknowledge the presence of God and respond to Him for just a, just a second here today. If you're here or you're watching online, of course, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, um, the call is to give everything that you are, not just everything that you have. Things we have uh, come and go, but it's, it's ourselves. That's what he's asking for. And so if you're here today, no matter how you got here, or you're watching this, no matter how you ended up on the live stream, and if you're saying, Ben, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't know if I'm forgiven or where I'm going to be at the end of all things, but I want to know and I want a relationship with him and I want to surrender myself to him. And if you've never done that before, the best decision that you can make today is to give your life to Jesus. So before we go any further, I just want to ask, is there anybody here today and you're saying, Pastor Ben, I need to give my life to Jesus today. If that's you, I'm asking you to raise your hand real quickly. I want to see it. Pastor Ben, I need to give my life to Jesus today. There was a woman that came for the first time last night. That was her decision. Pastor Ben, I need to give my life to Jesus today. Today's that day. I don't want to push it off to another day. If that's you. If you're here today and you do believe in Jesus, which is, if not all of us, the majority of us, and you've never been water baptized, I want to say to you that we have filled up the baptismal. We have shorts, we have shirts, we're ready. That's something that the Lord's been doing is that people have been making decisions to give all, and all means I need to take that step that I've been pushing off for a long time. If you believe in Jesus, your next step is to be water baptized and then move towards discipleship. And so I just want to ask, is there anybody here today that's never been water baptized, but you are a believer, you are a follower of Jesus, and you're saying, today, Pastor Ben, today I'm going to make that decision. I need to be water baptized. You either didn't get water baptized, or when you were, you weren't making that decision for yourself. And we want to baptize you today after the service. We're going to close, but I just want you to raise your hand and make that commitment today. Are you making that commitment today? Today's a day of water baptism. Is that you today? Both of you? Amen. Okay, we have three people. Is there anybody else? Water baptism. I need to be water baptized. And this is me confessing Jesus is Lord. It's what, what we're saying is we're saying, I've died to my old way of life, and I've been raised with Christ. I'm born again. I'm made new. Today's that day. Anybody else? We have three people. Okay. You three, will you meet me, uh, Pastor Jared, right here, right now? Let me pray for you guys. Father, thank you for all that you're doing. We ask that you would bless these in Jesus' mighty name. We love you. We give all to you. We thank you for what you're doing. And the church said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.